Today we're looking at Paul's first ever recorded sermon. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, first, because it's Paul. He was the great villain of Christianity, who was then converted, transformed from the inside out. Many people have called Paul the greatest movement, the greatest leader in the Christian movement. Some have even called Paul the greatest leader in any movement that there has ever been. Paul has written half of the New Testament. And to be clear, this is not his first sermon that he has given, but it's the first recorded sermon. So the question we have to ask is, why is Luke, the writer of Acts, putting this sermon as Paul's very first recorded sermon? And the answer, I believe, is because Paul has, Paul has finally stepped into the destiny that God has laid before him. He's finally stepping into his purpose and into his calling. And the question we have to ask is, okay, then what led up to this moment? And the answer is that Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. And he was, a, he was an ambitious young Jewish leader who was passionate, tireless, and violently pursued the early church. He was the cause of the one who brought about Stephen, the, the great leader of, of Christianity as it's being birthed, is the one that causes death. Saul is the reason that there is the scattering of Christians all throughout the land around. And then one day, on a dusty road, this is Paul's backstory, by the way, one day on a dusty road, Paul is thunderstruck with the glory and grace of Christ. And from that moment on, he cannot stop proclaiming Christ as the risen Son of God. And as he begins to do this, immediately his old Jewish friends now begin to persecute him, and they're seeking his death. So Barnabas, we talked about Barnabas last week. Barnabas is like the hero of, of the Acts, in, in my opinion. So Barnabas takes Saul and brings him to Jerusalem like the headquarters of the Christian movement. And all the leaders are looking at Saul, and now these leaders are protecting the one who once persecuted them. They're protecting the one who killed their friend Stephen. Pretty significant. And then he's sent back to his hometown, and then it's like he's there for seven or eight years. We don't really know what he's doing. He's learning, he's doing something, but then finally Barnabas goes to get him, and he says, all right, it's time, Saul. So they go to the city called Antioch, and together they begin to teach about Christ, and the whole city's transformed. And after that trip, Paul begins his first missionary journey. And he, he goes out with Barnabas, goes back to his hometown, actually does some work there, and he's traveling around. And then during this time, from his time with Barnabas to our story today, he's absolutely changed. He has a name change. He goes from Saul to now he's adopted his Roman name, Paul. Before, Barnabas was the leader. And now Barnabas has like lifted Paul up to become this leader. So the question is, what has happened to him? And, and the answer, using our context clues, is Saul or Paul has had to basically face death. He's had to look death in the eyes because they had to cross over this dangerous mountain to get to where they are. They had to, to potentially face um, 
a brigade, brigade of bandits, and then he gets sick with what a commentator called chronic malaria fever. And in this sickness, he's staring death in the face, and it's like God's testing him. Will you suffer for my son? And his answer is, I will cross the mountain. I will stare the sickness and death in the face, and I will go on no matter what. And they enter into this town, again, called Antioch. So we were in Antioch last week. This is a new Antioch. And they enter into Antioch, and they go into the temple, and immediately they look at Paul, and they say, will you give the sermon today? Now, I don't know if it's because he's dressed in his rabbi clothing. I don't know if it's just something looks like this man needs to preach. So they ask him to. And here's what he says. This is his very first public sermon, and I'm picking up right in the middle of it. And he says this, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, this is about Jesus, by the way, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served this purpose of God, in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Our first point is that God saves. In the first part of his sermon, which I did not read to you, it's, it's the history of God saving his people, what's called the history of salvation, and when you look at what Paul says in that area, God is always the noun. There's always a verb or an action where God is doing the rescuing of us, the object. Sentence after sentence. And what we should gather from that is that God is the one who saves. Not our work, but his. Something that... When I'm preaching... And someone comes up to me after and says something like this. I can't believe I've never seen that before. I've grown up in church my whole life and I never realized that. 
or I've been running from God my whole life because I thought this, but now I understand it's this, and how have I missed it? And it always has to do with understanding their contribution to their own salvation. So here's how we typically will think in the wrong ways about Christianity. We think it's like if God sees me and he knows that I'm trying hard to be good, if he sees my heart that's putting some effort in, then he will be gracious to me and save me. In Christianity, Paul says here, no, that's not how it works. God does absolutely everything. You, you can think of it like this. Christianity is not saying do, it's saying done. Christianity is not bringing about shame in your life. It's putting the blame on Christ, so shame is lifted. Christianity is not saying earn this. It's saying Christ has paid for it on the cross. Buddha's last words are strive without ceasing. Christ's last words are it is finished meaning he has accomplished it all. Everything is in him, and our hope is in him. It's not even that you are obeying God to be accepted, but now it's that your acceptance that you have received is producing this desire to obey God in you. God does it all. The only, there is one thing that we contribute to our salvation, and it's simply need. We need to be saved. And that's the only thing that we contribute. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Acts, here's what he says. Don't look at all of these amazing acts that are being accomplished by these men. You would make the mistake if you looked at them and thought, this is why God loves them. It's the love that they have already received from God and the grace that they've received that's compelling them to become men who are doing these things that they are doing. Here's what he says in his commentary about the whole book of Acts. He says, it means this. This is the message. We must all be justified alone by faith in Jesus Christ without any contribution from the law or help from our works. Paul knows this intimately. Paul was the villain of Christianity. He hated Christianity. He, had, he hated Christ. He never would have wanted to become a Christian. It's everything he's fighting against. So if Christianity means you even have to take one step toward God to be saved, Paul would never be a Christian. Because he violently hated Christ and all of his followers. And yet on the road, he is converted. That's the first part that God saved. Second part of Paul's sermon shows that salvation all goes according to God's plan. So it's not only that God alone saves, but he planned it to go down exactly the way that it did. The divine storyteller holds the pen in his hand and what he writes happens. So if you look in our verses, it said that everything happened, like the leaders took an innocent, the innocent Christ, crucified him, and then it says by doing that, they fulfilled the plans of the Old Testament. In other words, try this on. Take a year of your life 
and devote it to reading the Old Testament, finding all of the promises that are made, and then look at how Christ has fulfilled those promises. And I promise you, at the end of that time, you will say, wow, it really all did happen the way that Christianity says it happened. And the point I'm making here is that God uses, because of his, his he takes the evil in us and uses it to bring about our rescue. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. And you know that, that you know what that means? God is far more in control than you realize. And that might be comforting, that might be terrifying. It doesn't matter. He's in control. He's planning things to go out down the way that they do. There's something that puzzled me in the past. We're thinking about the, the control of God, the sovereignty of God, uh, his rule and his reign, and this is what puzzled me. What in the world is a snake and a tree doing in this garden that can ruin everything for us? Like, why is it there? And the answer to this puzzling question is that because God is love. And because he's perfect love, he must manifest or display that love perfectly. Well, what's perfect love? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no greater love is there than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. So because God is perfect in love, he must come and befriend us, come down and be with us, and then die for us to display his perfect love. So if I might, if you would allow me to say this, the fall of humanity is both terrible like that sound. And then with your laughs, it's beautiful. It's both terrible and beautiful because without the fall, it means that you never would have seen it. You never would have known how much God loved you. It required this to happen for you to get a picture of the amount of love that God has for you. If you, you take someone like Paul, who has seen the love of God for him, and you said to Paul, Paul, look, all of your pain in your life that you've ever had can be removed, but you also won't know the love of God. What do you want to do? Paul would say, give me all of the pain because my pain has only showed me his love. And that is God taking evil and working it out for good for us. And here's what that means. Whenever something is going wrong in your life, God is sovereign and he's in control. And it means he's going to orchestrate what's happening to you if you will let him do this. I don't know that you have a choice in it, but it means it's an opportunity now for you to discover his love and his grace in a way that you never would have known it if you had not faced the difficulty, if you hadn't faced the pain. And you may say, David, that sounds insensitive. And all I'm saying is this, try it out in your pain. Go to him and say, I don't understand what you're doing. And what you will find, if you stick there with him, is that you're going to find his love and his grace wash over you. And I am not at all saying that your circumstance will get better. 
That is not the prize. There will come a day when all things are made right, but that is not the time that we are in. Right now, we are in the time where when all difficulties come, we go to him, and the prize is him, and he gives us more of him and more of his love and more of his grace, and we say, you are enough for me even in this time. And then, let me also say this. There is a very long period of time between the promise that God makes when humanity falls and eats of this rotten apple to when Christ comes and is crucified on the cross. It's a long period of time for that promise to then be fulfilled, which means at times for you in the pain, it's going to feel like there's a long period of time. And it might even feel like you don't even know where God is and what's happening. And that is when you trusted the promise that he made, that because he made this promise, because the cross and the resurrection have happened, that means he's going to keep his promise. And what it means for you is that as you are waiting, you understand that Christ is the seed that has been buried in the earth. And every single tear that you have that is shed, that falls upon that dirt, it's watering the ground from which Christ is under and he will rise up. I'm not saying he's going to rise again. He's already risen. What I'm saying for you in your mind and in your heart, you're going to see him rise up in your life and he's going to be enough. And he's going to be beautiful and he's going to be wonderful. And you'll start saying crazy things like Paul would say, like, I will take the pain if it gives me more of his love. And you say, David, that sounds so good. But how can I trust that this is going to happen for me? And my answer is in our next point, you've just got to look at the facts. Paul, in verse 34, calls the resurrection. Did you see this? He calls the resurrection a fact. He calls it a fact. Now, the problem with facts are that you can't argue with them. You can't bend them. You bend to the facts. We live in what is called a postmodern age, and here's how we approach religion. We, we look at all the, like a menu of all the religions we have before us, and we start looking like the menu, like, which one sounds the best to me? I think I like that one the best. I think I'm going to go with that one. And the problem with that is if there's something that's a fact, then, well, you just have to pick the thing that's the fact. And, and here's what that means. If you're a Christian, don't be a Christian because it's useful. Though I would argue Christianity is the most useful of all religions. Don't be a Christian because it's beautiful, though I would argue Christianity is the most beautiful of all religions. Be a Christian because it's true. However, here's the problem it creates for you. If it is true, it means that when you go through difficulties in life, there's some light that's going to turn on, you, turn on in you and say, wait, so God is sovereign, he's in control, I, I think I know this deep down, and my life is turning out the way that it is, so I'm blaming you, God. And this is, the, this is the dilemma. Like, okay, my life is not going the way that I want, and I'm angry at God about it. I'm shaking my fist, and if I had enough courage, I would curse him to his face. But then you're, you're looking at him in anger. And if you will just look at the facts, as you look at him with anger, you look long enough at him, you're going to realize that he's still going to work all things out for good. And because you're looking at the facts. Okay, now what are the facts that tell you this? The facts are the death and the resurrection of Christ. And here's what we know about the death of Christ and the disciples. When Jesus dies on the cross, 
the disciples are thinking, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. The worst thing that's ever, this, this was their hope. This was the man that was going to save them. This was the man that was going to deliver Israel. This is the man that was going to restore the kingdom of God. And, he, and he's hung on the cross and he's dead. The worst thing that's ever happened to them. But it turns out, three days later, they find out this is the best thing that's ever happened to them and to the rest of the world. And this means, well, let me say it this way. When you think everything's going wrong in your life, you look at him and you say, he was the truly innocent man and everything went wrong for him so that one day it can all go right for me. And that means you don't have to be angry at God anymore. And the proof is the cross. He loves you. The proof is the cross that he loves you. And the resurrection is proof that he's going to fix everything. All of it. He'll bring beauty out of the ashes. And it means that one day when you are in eternity, you're going to look back at this life. And you're going to see all the suffering and the pain that you went through. And as you look at it, you're going to say, wow, somehow, someway, this is the promise in Romans, somehow, someway, all this bad stuff that happened to me is making glory all the better. And you say, well, how does that happen? I don't know the answer to that. I just know it's being said, and I trust it, and I believe it. And that's the promise that's given to you. He will fix it. And all the pain is worth it. Okay, and they say, well, David, you still haven't showed me the facts yet. Okay, well, here's the facts that Paul does give us. He talks about these witnesses that have seen the risen Christ. We know there are 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And all of the disciples have died proclaiming that they have seen the risen Lord. And let me tell you this, people don't die for a lie. And even, let me just go so far as to, to tell you this. Critical scholars. A critical scholar is someone who is studying Christianity, studying the Bible, studying the history of Christianity, but they're not a Christian. They're critical. And here's what almost all of them say about the resurrection. They say Jesus was a real man who most definitely died by crucifixion on the cross. And his disciples all say that they saw him risen from the dead. But not just his disciples, 500 eyewitnesses. And they say, because of that truth, here's the problem for us critical scholars, they might say, is that there has never in history before been a, an example like this of mass hallucinations. In other words, they died proclaiming that this is true. They couldn't have hallucinated this because there were multiple events where multiple different people have seen the risen Christ. So the critical scholars are saying, it appears like this has happened. But we have this presupposition that this couldn't happen, so we don't believe it's happened. However, the facts remain that it does appear like it's happened. Which means we should just believe, because the facts are laid out for us. Now, what happens when you believe? There are these promises that get showered upon you. And the promises, these are the things that make you weep. I was in Starbucks this week working on the sermon, and 
or talk to someone who in the past was not a Christian. Um, she was angry at the church, angry at Christianity, felt like it was just trying to uh, like rob her of joy and peace. And then she became a Christian and she realized that she was missing out for so long because she had misunderstood what it was. And she was weeping right there in Starbucks. What, what is the stuff that makes us weep? Well, we're looking at what he's done for us. The cross is proof for his love and the resurrection is proof that he's going to fix things. But when the promises start coming, like that's really when the tears start flowing. Because everything that he's done is being applied to us. So the first promise is in verse 38 and it says, you'll be forgiven. The rotten apple that humanity has eaten from that represents our sin, Christ holds that rotten apple on the cross, and the father looks at him while he's holding that rotten apple, and he says to his son, what have you done? Meaning he's holding all the blame. He's holding all of the sins of humanity upon himself. What have you done? And then verse 39 says where we've been freed The Greek word for freed, we often translate as justified, which means that the perfect record of Christ has been blanketed over us. So you're not just forgiven and given like a blank slate and God's just like, eh, let's see what happens with them. He has clothed you with righteousness. So when the Father looks down at you, He looks at you with the same kind of intensity of love that he looks at his one and only firstborn son. Like He loves you that much. Man, and if you would just believe that would be true, gosh, you would live so much different. I know you would. That's the thing that Paul realized. Like He's looking at his vile and heinous acts where he has been the great persecutor of the Christian church. And now, instead of receiving all of the blame, he's clothed with this perfect record of his Savior. And it makes him wild with love for God. And then the third promise is a new king. Paul starts quoting from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, there's a promise of a new king that's coming. I think she wants a cookie. Is that what she said? And let me tell you, you have the kind of king who will give you a cookie if you ask for it. He's a good, like, he really is a good king. It, it's funny, but, well, it's really funny. Uh, he's the kind of king that, um, like, you would, if, if the king had a quarters, you would never go and knock on the king's door in the middle of the night and ask him for a glass of water or for a cookie. But he's the kind of king that invites you to do that. Um, He's the kind of king who chases down us and then calls the church his bride. Now, if you are his bride, that means his home is your home. And his father is your father. Absolutely everything that is his is now yours. And he's the kind of king that's good and tender, but he's also the kind of king that fights. What is he fighting against? Come on, look at me, look at me. What is your king fighting against for you? This is a very important question. You better know the answer. And the answer is he's fighting against corruption. The promise 
is that sin and death and decay have been destroyed. That's what he's fighting. All for you. Often we'll, we'll think about our culture today and we'll say we're in a scientific culture. So it's really hard for us to believe in the legitimacy of the resurrection. However, and we, we say, well, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have science. They weren't really thinking about things the way that we are. We know much better now not to believe in the resurrection. Well, this just isn't true. The Epicureans, a Greek group at the time, when Christ died and rose... They didn't believe in any type of afterlife. They believed you just descend into, the, into dust and you're gone. You're done. The Jewish sect, the Sadducees, believed the same thing. Like, we're, you're just done. There's nothing after this. The Stoics believed that we were swallowed up into the soul of the earth. Meaning, like, it sounds pretty when you say it like that, but really what they're saying is you're like fertilizer. You just feed the earth, and you live on in the earth that way. There was a lot of reasons why people wouldn't believe in the resurrection, yet the movement launches and changes the world. And then Paul says something like this. Death. Where, like Paul looks death in the face. Like Maybe that's what happened on the mountain. He says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And then John, in the book of Revelation, he says, one day there will be no, no more hurt, death, pain. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. David, all the way back in Psalm 23, says, death is only but a shadow that you pass through. Which means now we can say goodbye to death. Late last year, I was asked by someone in hospice if I would walk alongside a family who had uh, a, little, a little boy who was dying. He wasn't even two yet. And at his funeral, I looked at the verse, Psalm 23, that, that says death is but a shadow. And I'm looking out at all the people, and there's so much sorrow, like there's so much pain but that's not all that's there. There's a hope that kept stirring. And this is going to sound strange to you. But I felt like I looked at some of the worst that death could do. And I left with more hope. Because when I was staring death in the face, I was also staring my Savior in the face. And when I looked at him and I knew that he died and he had risen... To do away with the corruption of death, I knew that 2,000 years ago, death was given its own tombstone. And if that is true, then what should your response be to all of this? It means you no longer have to fear death. That's, that's why Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like he's viewing death as gain. He's ready to leave this earth, but he's going to stay here and accomplish his purpose and his destiny. But he is so ready to go be at home with God. But also with that, Paul gives us a warning in these verses. In verse 39 and 40. Verse 39, no, 40 and 40. I don't know. You can look at it later. Um, he says, beware. 
Watch out. Watch out for what? Well, in the prophets, they were writing. In, in, in the writing of the Old Testament, there's writings, and it's saying that there will be scoffers. And the warning is this, that you can hear all of this beautiful news and not believe it. And then the teeth of corruption and death will take hold of you and pull you down into the abyss and hold you forever. And what he's saying is, don't let that be true for you. Believe that from the foundation of the earth and before that God has written this story out. And he's planned it out. And the pen has hit the paper. And as it hits the paper, it's coming to life. And the plan was this. That the only son of God would come and take the rotten apple. And he would hold it on the cross. And he would take all of our blame. And he would descend into the dust and into the dirt and into the ashes. And there... He would fight against all corruption and rise. And when he rises, he would become the tree of life in a fallen land. A new Eden has come in him and all that will feast upon him and believe in him will live because they're feasting from the tree of life. The message here is that the resurrection is true in Christ, so go to him and feast for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, you are good. And our life is hard. If we could cry like all of these babies in this room, we would do it, but we're too grown up to know better. But these tears that we have, that we shed, maybe in private, you won't let them go to waste. They will be the thing that awakens spring in our heart. And we're going to believe that. And when we have trouble believing, help us believe. And when we have trouble believing, give us friends who will walk with us through it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.